G'day, 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 and welcome back to the Stone Coast Series podcast. Yes, yes, I know it's been almost three weeks since my last episode, but I've been running around like a headless chook. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. In all seriousness, uni is about to finish, and I'll have a lot more time to release more episodes very, very shortly. Anyway, enough dribble. This week, we welcome on Nino Bucci. Nino is a successful journalist, author, and part-time daredevil. You'll hear more about that during the episode, but he's written his own crime text on the Stockers and has worked for several of Australia's biggest media companies for some time now. What a great time it was sitting down for a chat with the great man, Nino Bacino. I hope you love this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Much love always, and I'll see you on the other side. Nino Bucci, welcome to the Stone Coast Series podcast, mate. It's an absolute privilege to have you on. So thank you for taking some time out of your night and um, just after putting the kids to bed. Pleasure, mate. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Nah, thank you. So um, I just wanted to um, get you on. We've had a couple of situations before and um, meetings and stuff like that. But one that comes to mind that we just spoke about was when um, you come to Warrnambool College through the alumni program and we met through that um, as I was working there organizing and helping the alumni and you come on and had a discussion with the students about your journey through journalism and all that sort of stuff but we'll touch on that a little bit more after but I just wanted to touch on how things are going for you through the coronavirus. Um, Workplaces and things have changed a lot since everything's come about and it's probably a little bit more difficult. So how's it looking for you and how's the journalism world coming along? Yeah, it's, um, it's been a funny time, obviously. Um, a, because so much of our jobs going out to sort of, you know, meet people and, um, and cover stories and all the rest of it. And, and basically there's only kind of one story at the moment. And uh, that's, you know, what's going on with COVID and, you know, we're pretty restricted in terms of the movement and stuff. So, it's been a really weird time. Uh, personally, I kind of feel as if it's actually been quite enjoyable for me, um, which sounds weird because, you know, we, um, my, my wife had another kid in late Feb. And so, you know, it sort of went from being this year where I'd be, you know, potentially kind of watching the clock and trying to get back you know, from the office in time to sort of see him, him and, and my oldest boy before they went to bed and instead I've kind of been here all day with them, you know, so my kind of coffee breaks and stuff, um, you know, that I usually have at work, I've got a little bit more kind of meaning now because I can go and, you know, play with them and or help, you know, help my wife out looking after them and stuff. But, but no, it's been, it's been an odd year. Uh, I think the concept of time has become incredibly fluid this year for a lot of people in, in Melbourne um, during this lockdown, because it's just um, everything's just sort of stretched into, into one. Um, And yeah, it's kind of, it's been an incredibly difficult thing for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, potentially even more difficult stuff's going to come in terms of what will happen with the economy and, and all the rest of it. Um, but it's certainly been a very, 
I guess a time where you get your head around what's important, you know, and what matters and, and everything. Um, but work-wise, it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been good. I'm kind of just a bit sick about report, sick of reporting about COVID. Apart from that, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I know that myself, like I sort of read a lot and stuff like that, but I don't necessarily, I've actually stopped watching the news at the minute because I'm so sick of hearing about all the negativity in the news. And one thing that we're really passionate about on the Stone Co series is spreading positive mental health um, strategies and awareness and things like that. So I can imagine for the people in Melbourne that it'd be extremely difficult, especially being in high rise buildings um, and stuff like that compared to us Victorians down here. Like it's, it's completely different. Like we can move out in big spaces and, and things like that. Whereas you guys are cooped up um, pretty heavily up there and I can only imagine it'd be really difficult and especially having the curfew and um, yeah, sort of only having, having small parks and things that you can use in the inner suburbs mm. and stuff like that. So it would be definitely really tough, but Nino and I are both um, alumni of Warrnambool College. Um, Nino, obviously a more recognized member of the alumni, but we both started one. <laughs> we both started um, at Warrnambool College, and could you run us through um, a couple of your your early years at Warrnambool College? Because I know that um, you weren't the the most academically focused student in the early years. Mm. Run us through how your schooling went and sort of how you come about to move into journalism. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... I, you know, was a Port Ferry boy and uh, obviously when we finished primary school over in Port, you know, we've all got to come over to Warrnambool to go for high school. Or, you know, some people go other places, but the majority of us go to, to Warrnambool. And so I think it's, you know, it's a bit of a greater adjustment probably for kids that have to, you know, jump on a bus and leave their, their hometown to go to high school. Um, and for me, that was something that I probably reacted on reacted to in a, in a, I guess, a quite a sort of negative way. And was probably a bit of a, you know, a bit of a troublemaker, um, probably a bit of a bully or definitely a bit of a bully, you know, um, and certainly, you know, caught up in different kind of antisocial behavior, um, probably as a way to try and fit in, uh, in the, at the end of the third term of year seven, I basically got sort of told, look, we want you to go to the, um, what was then called the Warnable Alternative School. Um, you know, basically sort of got told, like, you've got to go here and sort yourself out because we can't, we can't handle you here or we, we, we basically don't feel that what's going on here is working. Um, and that was one of the best things that could have happened to me at that point. You know, I wasn't, there's a lot of kids that looking back now that I went to school with, you know, had a hell of a lot more problems to deal with, you know, than I did. Um, I had a completely, you know, my home life was really fine. You know, I didn't have any issues with, um, with kind of, you know, substances or, you know, alcohol. We weren't, you know, we weren't poor. Um, but, you know, some kids just don't take to school straight away. And that was, that was definitely me. So being able to kind of break that, um, break that cycle a little bit by heading to the alternative school, um, which I did for all of, 
uh, like what, what would have been term four of year seven and um, and first term of year eight, um, just just gave me that kind of self awareness that look, you know, you can react to things in a negative way or a positive way. You can be a negative influence or a positive influence. And like it wasn't as if I went back to school and I was perfect. Like I got suspended in year eight and kept getting attentions and and things like that. But I just had a lot more. Um, yeah, a lot more self-awareness that um, I didn't have to, that I could be kind of smart enough to, to get myself out of those situations that were problematic, but also that I didn't have to drag other people down with me if I found a class boring or whatever. So um, yeah, basically from that point, you know, I, um, I did relatively well at school. Um, I certainly was someone who was there more for the social aspect still than the academic aspect of it, but um, you know, again, was probably lucky enough compared to a lot of other kids that I went to school with that um, you know I was, I was relatively gifted academically and didn't have to work super hard at it. Um, and I'd been keen on becoming a journalist since I was in primary school um, with a couple of different little details and things along the way. But that was the that was the thing that was a constant, um, and so sort of set you know, myself to be able to, to be able to do that and sort of pick my VC subjects and stuff accordingly. Um, but yeah, didn't get the marks, you know, um, didn't, didn't get a score that was sort of in the, I think you needed um, high eighties or, or low nineties to get into um, journalism in um, at La Trobe, which was the kind of the uni that you need the lowest marks for. It was even higher if you wanted to go to um, RMIT um, or Monash and so I just got into arts at La Trobe uh, I was able to transfer because I did get good marks at uni got you know all relatively good you know above a B average in my first year I was able to transfer into journalism um, finished that uh, um, kind of like I didn't take a year off or anything went straight into it and then you know basically I think a week after I had to hand in my last essay started at the Bendigati in my first job um, and yeah, have basically been, been in industry since one way or another. And that was 12 years, 13 years ago. Um, yeah. It'll be in November. So yeah. two and a half years at the Bendigati, a year at the Canberra Times, um, then um, was lucky enough to, to um, be awarded uh, one of the age traineeships um, and, you know, went through that, which was a year and then spent the next, uh, I think I was there for a bit over seven years at the age, seven, eight years at the age before I joined the, um, investigations unit at the ABC, which I just, um, just left, uh, last month. And I'm, I'm now, um, a reporter at the guardian. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a, been a wild ride and it's, yeah, I've been doing it for 13 years, but um, like the start in a lot of ways, which is a bit of a, a strange thing to say as well. Yeah, yeah. And winding back to when you're at school, there was um, a story that I heard off a very respected member of Warnable College um, at that point in time. And you actually failed year nine journalism and had to do something for the teacher in terms of 
not anything inappropriate, but you had to do something for the teacher to pass the unit. And can you delve into that a little bit into what that was? Uh, I basically had to write, and you know, this is for Jan O'Connell, whose whose daughter's a journalist, actually. Um, I basically had to write an essay about why I shouldn't fail, um, <laughs> which I did, and I've still got it somewhere. Um, and yeah, I mean, I basically, I th- I'm pretty sure that's what the topic was. I don't think it actually has the topic in the essay, but I've still got the essay. Um, and yeah, you know, that, that's kind of what Jan was like, you know, she, um, would make you kind of dig into it and yeah, I, that journalism class was kind of a really good example, I suppose, of stuff that I struggled all the way through, uh, through high school with, um, which was basically, you know, apply myself, um, even if it was something that I was kind of, you know, obviously really passionate about just trying to, um, yeah, not fall into piss farting around in class and actually trying to, you know, dig in and do the work so you can, um, so you can pass and so you can, you know, um, not have it hanging over your head, but yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, Jan, Jan in hindsight was, um, someone who was really passionate about, not just teaching and not just the kids, but the actual content of what she was trying to teach, which was, which was journalism. You look back at, you know, the way she thought about that, then it's, it's pretty amazing really because she, you know, she was on the money about it and like, you know, basically thinks the same way about journalism as I, you know, have thought about it sort of since, I guess. Um, Yeah. But also like the other fascinating thing about that is I was actually working at a newspaper at that point, you know, um, I was, had did had done um, work experience at the Moyne Gazette uh, in Port Ferry and basically kind of kept kept at it after um, after that happened and was sort of helping them you know fold the newspaper the night before it was supposed to go out and things like that. So um, yeah, I mean when I kind of reflect back on that, it's not hasn't just been sort of thirteen years um, working. It's you know the three years I was at uni where I was doing a lot of kind of unpaid work the whole time. And it's the, you know, those, those late shifts in the one gazette, um, you know, back when I was kind of at high school and stuff as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I can definitely relate to that because I remember when I was at school, I was, um, I'd probably be called the student that flew under the radar. Like I would never get in trouble. I was always a, a pretty good kid, but I never applied myself and it, and I'm still like that at uni today. Like I work in a um, primary school in Warrnambool and I excel so much more in the work side of things compared to the book work side of things at uni. And I learn so much more mm. out of the prac side. So I can relate to that fully. And I, I call myself a pracademic to people. Like I learn so much more through that sense of learning rather than sitting down in a computer and typing away on a, a site yeah. or something like that. So yeah, I can completely understand that because um, I can imagine if you're working at the Moyne Gazette that you definitely had a passion for it. And um, I'm sure there's so many more people out there that are exactly like, um, like you and I, and I'm probably a little bit different though. I'm not probably academically gifted, but um, yeah, I'm very passionate about my field at the same time. So I do get that. But you said you mentioned that you moved on to the Bendigo advertiser. Now the sense that I get from your personality is that you're quite a quirky sort of person in your own right. And while you're at the Bendigo advertiser, you 
um, used to sort of get the sports writer to write things about people within your family that, that, that you wanted, that you wanted to go on the paper, but, um, didn't the not what happened <laughs> that's not what happened the uh the sports writer um was it? Well, there was there was three of them um and there was a couple in particular that uh that i found a lot of fun and i actually did a bit of sports reporting um while i was up at bendigo um but this particular bloke you're talking about was um a bloke by the name of luke west who still does sports reporting and um, no, he he basically was wanting to write about Woody at the time, Woody, my brother, um, at a time that he was playing for Huntley and I was playing for Mount Pleasant in the um, Heathcote District Football League up there. And, uh, and Westy, you know, because I guess the thing about sports reporting, not that they ever said this, but that's probably one of the reasons why I was sort of decided I didn't necessarily want to go down that path um, is it can be quite repetitive. You know, you've got, you got your set seasons, you've got your set days within those seasons that you, you know, are doing certain things. Um, you know, you're writing about teams, you're writing about matches, you're writing about, you know, the wash up on Mondays, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, but Westy, you know, used to be able to find fun in it by sort of being like when he would write up the teams, uh, just deciding to pick out a couple of different people every week to sort of, you know, it was literally like, you know, not even a hundred words on the team, but just to kind of pick out a couple of players and, uh, and write them up, so to speak. So um, one week you decide, you come sidling over to him and he did sidle. He had this very, uh, <laughs> he had just a, a funny walk, especially when he knew he was doing something funny. So he just wandered over to the desk. And he calls himself a talking goat. That's his um that's what he calls himself a big footy as well. So he would have said something like and he refers to himself in the third person as the goat. So yeah, goat's thinking about putting that uh that Woody Bush in the, in the teams this week. I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah, what do you reckon? How do, how do I describe how do I describe him? I'm like, oh, I don't know, whatever you want that. So, I reckon I'll go with elastic wingman. <laughs> So he called him Elastic Wingman, but it didn't have anything to do with me. He just, uh, apart from the fact that Woody's my brother, but I definitely didn't put him up to it. See, um, my sources tell me that you are entirely behind this. Nothing to do with me. <laughs> nothing to do with me. I and he called him, a, I think, actually, the second one I might have. So he, <laughs> another time he featured in the same thing. And, um, and I think I might have, the second time you referred to him in that as the lightweight scrapper. I do think I gave him that. I think I gave him that one. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, that was the information that I received um, from an anonymous source, obviously. But yeah, um, you then moved on to the Canberra Times. When you, um, don't worry, I don't have any dirt on the Canberra Times, but when you're at the Canberra Times, what took you there from the Bendigo advertiser? Yeah, so I went from the Bendigo Addy to the Canberra Times. Um, to be frank, I basically, I'd missed out on the age traineeship the year before um, and was pretty flat about it. You know, like um, at that time, people kind of rotated through the regional papers relatively quickly. Like if they were going to go anywhere, you know, they'd, they'd all spend at least a year there. Um, but the fact they've been there two and a half years 
and it, it correlated with the age not taking on as many trainees and not taking them on as frequently as they used to. Um, but I'd missed out on an intake. I didn't really want to be in Bendigo anymore and applied for a job at the Canberra Times. It was kind of funny actually, because it was, it was really, um, it was a bit of a long shot because it was a senior reporter. The Canberra Times, um, it's not quite, it's not the same now, unfortunately, like a lot of regional um, papers or papers outside of the Metropolitans. But back then um, it was a very serious paper. You know, it was, it was basically the, um, it was obviously the daily paper for Canberra, but it was um, you know, very much just on that tier below, I guess, you know, the age of Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian, um, it was kind of considered pretty similar to say, you know, Courier Mail, um, the Adelaide Advertiser, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a, it was a really good paper. Um, and they were applying, they were advertising for a senior reporter. I thought, oh, I'm not going to get this, but I'll, I'll have a crack. And, um, and anyway, I got the sort of, thanks, but no thanks email, um, you know, a couple of weeks later or whatever, got an interview, but then got the thanks, but no thanks, um, email a bit later. And, um, but then I got a call from the editor and, uh, he basically said, oh yeah, look, I, I understand you got an email. I was like, yeah, I did. And he's like, yeah, you weren't supposed to get that. I was trying to work out a way to put you on as well. Um, because you did really well, but you're obviously not senior enough. Um, and so I got the gig up there, which was great. And I'd sort of accepted on the spot, even though um, I hadn't talked to my then girlfriend and now wife about it, about the fact <laughs> I was just about to move to Canberra. Um, we were in conversation. In well, no, she knew I'd gone for it. She knew that I wanted it, but yeah, it was a interesting, it was an interesting conversation. <laughs> we, I can hear it in the background. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But yeah, it probably would have been better to maybe run it by her. Um, but Canberra was, uh, I mean, it gets a bad rap, obviously, as a place. Um, but perhaps because I'd grown up in the country, um, I found the adjustment pretty easy. Um, and yeah, loved it. Loved the work up there. Loved the place. The Canberra Times itself was a wild, wild, wild scene. Um <laughs> just some of the characters um, that I met there. Like I was only there a year and um, it was still, you know, still in a group chat with people I worked with there. Um, you know, I was there a year, like almost 10 years ago. Um, and uh, and just some of the characters that went through that place. Um, and, you know, I don't kind of want to go into too much detail because, you know, um, they that could listen to this, but yeah, there was just some absolutely wild stuff that went on, you know, um, just, just people that like, if you'd met them during the course of an entire career, you'd be like, Oh geez, I work with some characters. This was like in one year. And then there was other stories and stuff that didn't actually happen at the time I was there, but, um, <laughs> you know, like involved people that were still there. Um, yeah. You know, so there's like fist, fist fights between sub editors on the floor. There were, um, you know, people who ripped like doors off the hinges, like in fits of rage. You know, there was, um, there's a bloke who, you know, Renette was renowned for like he'd somehow managed to find a way to go to the Qantas Club for lunch every day, like because we were just down the road from the airport. Like, so he'd been able to find a way because obviously you're not supposed to go in there unless you've got a boarding pass. But he got some fucking wangle. So I used to go in there and have lunch every day. 
um, you know, there was another bloke who like every year managed to kind of convince the boss that he should do a feature on um, holidays down the South coast of New South Wales. And so he got the paper to basically put him up at a holiday house for like two weeks down there with his entire family. Like it was just, there's another bloke who wrote a book called stink of a journalist. Um, like it was, yeah. Um, it was a really great place to work and very funny place to work. Um, but yeah, was really happy to get the traineeship um, at the second. Well, it was actually the third crack because I had a go at it straight out of uni as well. But um, yeah, to get the traineeship at the third, the third crack at the agent to um, to move back down to Victoria and get get into that. Yeah, and you obviously did a lot of years at the age. Now I'll let you talk about um, sort of your experience there, but you reported crime at the age. I spent my trainee year doing a little bit of everything, but um, they kind of, uh, about eight months into that, kind of tapped me up and said, look, we want you to do crime. Um, and so, yeah, I basically did that the entire time I was there, really. Yeah. And while you were there, I remember a story that you told to the, I think it was the year 10 journalism kids that you had to write a column about something and it eventuated into you receiving some death threats Um over some writing that you'd created, but um, would you be able to delve into that a little bit into, um, you know, some funny stories that resulted from you reporting about crime? Because obviously when you're reporting about crime, you're talking about societies, people that are, I don't, don't want to word this poorly, but um, societies, poorer sort of valued people. What? Yeah, what no, it wasn't a straight up death threat, but basically... Um, basically there's a bloke who had had his house shot up and we went, you know, do what we, our job is, which is, you know, to go and knock on the door. Which um, is ballsy in itself, like to do that. Yeah. But it, I mean, it kind of goes with the territory. Um, and yeah, it's, it's probably the part of the job that I kind of like the most, I guess, is that license to do, that sort of thing that, um, yeah, that other people can't do. And, and whether it's like knocking on the door of someone who's, you know, been shot at or whether it's asking difficult questions of a premier or a prime minister, like it's a great privilege that you have as a journalist to kind of, you know, yeah, effectively um, hold people account or, you know, go where you got to go to get a story. Um, did you ever fear for your, like your life or anything like that when you're in those situations? Like, did you honestly? No, no, no. There's, there's people that are, um, there's people that are doing this job in countries that are, you know, where you actually can be murdered just for being a journalist. Like Australia is a very safe place to be a journalist. Um, you know, the, the one threat that got made for me was a bloke who, you know, after his house got shut up, apparently called 3AW, shared a building with us at the age um, at the time and said, oh, look, um, you know, I'm coming down with a common chair as a threaten that bloke from the age who just did a story about my house getting shut up, you know, but it wasn't taken that seriously. I got given a cab judge to make sure that I didn't, you know, walk home that day and that was about it. Um, but, I mean, it probably in contemporary history um and this isn't sort of widely known i guess but the the biggest or the most serious that um 
that threats have been taken against journalists is probably involved um, Islamic State making threats against you know certain journalists um, and also people involved with the um, the Nandrangada, the Calabrian Mafia. But neither of those ever, um, you know, I'm talking recently, um, you know, in the past sort of decade or so, none of those threats were considered super serious. The bikies have made other threats against journos as well that in, you know, uh, my understanding is in some instances have meant they've had to be relocated and things. But, um, I mean, look, there's been other, you know, there's other, um, I guess what you'd call blowback um, from us doing our jobs, which is, you know, also not, it's not pleasant. It might not be life-threatening, but it's not pleasant. Um, and I mean, you're seeing that a lot at the moment, actually in quite a fascinating sense with some of the reporters that are covering, um, you know, Andrews's daily press conference because, you know, they're obviously getting watched far more widely than any other, you know, press conference, probably in Australian history, you know, um, in terms of their regularity, in terms of how large that regular and how engaged that regular audience is. Um, and, you know, that's resulted in, um, you know, some of those people watching the press conference becoming quite frustrated about, you know, how, how journalists conduct themselves, um, you know, and the analogy has been drawn that they, you know, they usually only see the, the sausage, you know, they don't see how it's made. Um, and I think that's true. Um, but certainly it's not, a, it's not, it's not a dangerous job the way it is, um, in other countries in the world or if, or I, I suppose indeed if you're covering, you know, conflicts as a foreign correspondent or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And while you, while you were at the age, it sort of, um, I'm not sure whether it opened your eyes to reporting about crime or whether you'd already had any interest in it, but you decided to write, um, a book and become an author. So you wrote, um, a book called the Stockos. Do you reckon you could speak us through who these guys are? Like, I'm sure a lot of listeners would know who these guys are, but, they're a pretty serious bunch of dudes and I'll let you go through it, but you wrote a, a book on them over a couple of years and while they were, were they on the chase while you were doing it? No. So they've been caught by the time I actually started working on the book. Um, so yeah, just a bit of a recap. Um, Mark and Gino Stocko were a, um, you know, a son and a, and a father who basically, committed kind of crime over, um, you know, almost sort of two decades, um, right up from sort of far North Queensland all the way down to, um, Port Ferry actually. Um, and basically when they went on the run, uh, and became kind of, you know, on the national most wanted list and all the rest of it, I sort of started having a bit of a poke around, um, just as part of my day job, you know, as a crime reporter at the age, and was sort of fascinated to learn of their sort of backstory, um, you know, basically being involved in robbing the Port Ferry Yacht Club and and that sort of thing. Um, and then, yeah, um, as it happened, was able to kind of turn some of that work into a, or, or you know, use that experience to, to um, pitch a book to Penguin. Um, 
and yeah, worked on that for a couple of years and it was published in, um, in 2018. Uh, so yeah, huge amount of work. Um, something I'd kind of been keen to do for a while because um, I'd sort of been keen to, I guess, push myself in, a, in another direction um, with my writing and, um, and just do something a little bit different because um, I'd been doing crime reporting for yeah, six or seven years at that point. So uh, yeah, I, I just thought it was time to, to draw something else. And, um, and I guess um, I, once I started working on it, um, I really enjoyed the, um, the solitude of it. I liked, it was something I was working on, you know, by myself at largely my own pace. I obviously had de- deadlines and all the rest of it. Um, and that I was the only one kind of chasing the story. You know, I, I, um, I, I really enjoy that experience in a lot of ways. It actually reminded me of, of being back at Bendigo and how I, st- how I sort of started my career. Um, you know, because it, it, it didn't, um, it didn't have the same kind of, you know, media pack as, as generally kind of, um, congregates around the sort of stories that I was working on at the time or that I'm kind of covering now, you know, it was a, a simpler kind of, um, a simpler, in a way, a simpler way of doing journalism, even though as an actual finished product, it was obviously a lot more complicated and, um, and a lot more work than, than the, my day to day stuff. Yeah. And while you were, um, creating the book and writing it, did you ever, um, you obviously had to investigate a lot to use the use for content and stuff like that. But did you ever get in contact with these guys? Like I know they're obviously probably locked away when you were writing it, but did you ever get to sit down and have a discussion and pick their brains about like what their, what their motives and that were and like use that in your book? No, I would have loved to. I wrote them a letter. Um, I tried to obviously contact them through their lawyers and things and through their family, but then um, we didn't have any luck with that. So I wrote them a letter. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think it would have made for a better book if I could have spoken to them. I mean, you never, you obviously can't tell what someone's going to say when you, um, when you call them up or, you know, um, if I'd engaged them via a letter or anything, they might not have, they might not have elaborated on much at all, but, um, you know, I always try and make sure I've got people's point of view, you know, if they're, especially if they're the entire book. So it would have made for a better book, but, um, I hadn't set out thinking that they were going to want to be involved with it. Um, yeah, nothing that I'd sort of learnt uh, in researching what they'd done or anything like that suggested to me that they were the kind of people that would, you know, be giving me a buzz to talk things over. Yeah. And well, I have a lot of friends that listen to a lot of crime podcasts and read a lot of crime books and stuff like that because it is, it's really interesting. Where can people purchase the book from? I think you should still be able to find most places. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just Google it. Obviously, I sort of looked up how to buy my own book. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you should be able to find it online still. Um, yeah, it did. It did uh, relatively, relatively well. Like I was pretty happy with with how it went. Um, and yeah, I think it's you know, it's written probably a little bit differently to how how some true crime is written. Um, yeah, and I mean, people can like can if they've have any trouble they can find all my contact details and stuff on on twitter um and keep me up and i'll try and suss it out for them they can also if, if you know 
if anyone's kind of interested in other kind of true crime stuff as well as some stuff I can recommend that um, that's probably a little bit different, a little bit broader than I guess the traditional kind of um, constraints or what are seen as the traditional constraints of the genre. Cause I mean, I, I actually wasn't even as someone who wrote about crime um, and still does occasionally, I don't consider myself somebody who is particularly kind of obsessed with it. Um, I think there's a lot of pretty kind of overused um, sort of themes and, and um, tropes and that it's, I think it kind of can be fairly formulaic and um, I tried to stay away with, from that with my book. Um, and if I do consume true crime, I sort of, yeah, try and make sure it's stuff that's a little bit kind of different from that. Um, I guess stuff that's, you know, a little bit kind of, gratuitous or a little bit kind of um, almost kind of macabre, I guess, you know, um, in saying that, like I also understand that's why a lot of people do it. So you kind of have a good, got to have a good mix, but um, I guess I prefer uh, richly um, researched and well-written, uh, I guess, investigative pieces that are about crime rather than true crime itself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And you obviously spoke about that your book did relatively well. Do you know how many copies you sold all up? Yeah, about 6,000. So like not, you know, it wasn't a bestseller or anything, but, um, but yeah, I was happy with that. I thought that, um, you know, by the time it had kind of come out and all the rest of it, that had been, um, you know, that wasn't, wasn't a bad effort. And I think, you know, I think the publishers were relatively sort of happy with that as well. So yeah, I mean it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing to do, and I don't pretend to have my head around how publishing works. But and you know you don't, you definitely don't make money. You know most public, most authors don't make a great deal of money, particularly if you're sort of doing, um, you know, non-fiction things like this, and if it's one of your first books and stuff. So I, I wasn't sort of in it for that. But yeah, I thought it was a great experience, and I'm glad that you know it didn't kind of completely flop or anything so yeah yeah 100 it's a huge effort to write a book i could could only imagine how many hours it would have taken to construct it and put it all together and make it all make sense and edit it and all that sort of stuff so it's a huge effort so kudos to you but apart from um your work as a journalist you've also delved into a little bit of daredevil daredevil stuff so um you know riding planes not in the seat and yeah. on the wings. And for anyone that's interested in a visual, search up Nino Bucci Avalon Airshow on Google Images and you'll see a, a pretty detailed picture of um, what we're talking about. But And it'll also probably be the, um, the cover for this episode as well. So sorry, Nino, but that's going to be the cover for the episode. Yeah. Um, so if anyone wants to have a look at the the picture and get a little bit more of a, a grasp of, of, to what we're talking about um feel free to look it up on google but how talk me through that experience because like i was looking at that yeah and i was feeling like sick what looking at it because for me like being up there like so 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 scary like i know you strapped in and that oh, but, it was like, legitimately legitimately scary like i you know have done had you know and up until that point had done sort of bungee jumping and skydiving and 
all the other stuff, um, you know, gone out in not enormous, but not, you know, tiny surf, all that stuff, you know. Um, but this was, yeah, very, very frightening. And imagine, um, like, a, like, sky, I don't, for people who've been skydiving, it's kind of like that feeling of the free fall, um, but constant. Uh, and if you haven't gone skydiving, it's kind of like a really fast roller coaster um, that doesn't feel particularly safe. You know, like you're holding onto the back of a roller coaster or something rather than actually being strapped in. Um, and yeah, it was, it was petrifying. Like I, um, I didn't, you know, if you see the footage, um, which I'm not sure if that's floating about somewhere, like you can tell that I don't let go. Like, you know, there's a guy who went on kind of just after me and he was like waving his hands in the air and everything. I was just like, I'm not letting go of this. Like this doesn't feel safe. Cause a little seat, like you're supposed to sort of like prop yourself up on. Cause just to give a visual to people, um, you know, it's kind of important in a podcast. Um, it's basically a seat on the top wing of a biplane. I mean, they're called the Breitling something. Um, they were here for the Apple and Air show and was sort of doing it as a promo, you know, journos could go up and, and do it and write about it. And, um, and so you're basically, there's like a little sort of seat, kind of like those really povo little seats that some people carry around like for golf, but like heart, like the actual stool itself is about half the size of it. Yeah. And that, is on an angle on the top wing of this biplane and then you're sort of harnessed to it and they just and like they just do it and then they just fly around like normal um like so and, and their normal thing is like you know loop the loops and shit so it was so you're was, doing like up loop the loop so you're like almost hanging there i don't know if we, i got to actually say i don't know if we did full loop the loops if we did we definitely did some things where we went like pretty much straight up um I can't remember if we actually did a full loop. I don't reckon we would have because I reckon we would have just fallen out. But it was it was horrifying, like the whole thing, like especially the landing because it just, yeah. Um, I mean, the way these planes kind of work because they're obviously really old is they just sort of like glide back down to earth, you know, and you're all like just strapped on the top. So, yeah, it was, it was great, a great experience to do it, but it was... Yeah, petrifying. And then the worst bit was like later that month at the at um the air show after Avalon, they went to it, I think in Germany or whatever. One of them fucking crashed. Like, <laughs> I was like, what? So yeah, um, very very scary. But yeah, I mean, another like a really kind of obviously a very um that, that's a really kind of clear example of something that I've got to do because of this job, you know, that you wouldn't get to do otherwise. Um, and there's lots of stuff like that. There's lots of stuff that I've been like incredibly lucky to do just because of this job, even if it's not, you know, it wasn't a great story as in like a great news story or anything. It was pretty, a pretty um, fascinating experience. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I know for like myself and speaking for many others, others that um, like landing, on an airplane or taking off an airplane is uncomfortable the best of times, but on top of a wing, 
in the open air with like the only way that you can really explain the situation is looking at the photo. So if you haven't seen it, go and look at the photo on Google because it is genuinely amazing. And it looks like now is having a great time. Like he's got his thumbs up, he's smiling, but yeah, I, I can't imagine it would have been, would have been that fun. Was oh, it? It was fun, but it was like, it was, I was, I was glad when it was over. Yeah, yeah. Put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Know, I was very grateful to kind of, I wasn't like, yeah, I'll send me back up. I was, yeah. Thanks. Thanks guys. I was just, yeah. Yeah. Out, you know, um, but yeah, no, really um, glad to have done it, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just before we finish up after the age, you went on to the ABC as an investigator, but what's next for you? Cause you know, you've done so much already. Have you got anything else that you're looking to do before, you know, you like decide to settle down and maybe move back to a smaller country town. Like we did speak about on the phone. Yeah. Um, I really like to work overseas. Um, and, uh, I mean, I've just started at the guardian, but they're obviously, you know, um, started as a British newspaper that have now got a presence here and a presence in the U S um, and correspondence at a lot of different, countries around the world um so look that's that's something that i'd love to be able to do um and and something that i think uh that i think i'd be good at because again it's kind of that similar with the book you know it's that sort of um fairly solitary one out kind of reporting i guess um which which i really enjoy doing um but it's i mean it's a very it's not always and obviously there's a lot of um again it kind of goes back to the daily press conferences um you know i find journalism a very humbling job um and i think it's important that you keep that humility um and so even though you know you run through the fact that i've worked at those places and put a book out and all the rest of it um you still learn so much any on any story uh, or talking to you know, a person and um, you know, I'm a pretty firm believer in the fact that there is far more news that is yet to be uncovered than there is news that's, that's published every day. You know, there's, there's stories out there that are, that are waiting for you to go and get, and there's people that don't want you to report on them. Um, and, you know, without, sort of beating the kind of drum of you know why journalism is important too hard like that's that's why i do it you know so um it's a tricky job to kind of be too linear in um your expectations or where you want your career to go um but yeah i'm just kind of i'd love to work overseas um i suppose i'd love to get to a point where uh I could kind of choose what I wanted to do in a way. Um, and, you know, there's certainly some, um, some journalists that I look up to and that I think I'd like to have careers like them, but um, yeah, just really, really enjoying being back at a, um, even though they don't have a newspaper in Australia at a traditional print organization like the age. Um, Cause that's, you know, that's what I got into journalism for to write. Um, and feel that we're at a really fascinating kind of point um with journalism uh in a sense that there's obviously more 
read as never before. Um, but we've kind of got to find a way to get people to feeling willing to sort of pay for it. So, um, yeah, I guess trying to get a job overseas and then want to do that, I'll, I'll work out what's next. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm kind of taking it back to COVID a little bit um, and what you said about, uh, you know, living in the country or moving back to the country. It's, um, it's obviously realigned a lot of people's ideas about how workplaces should operate or can operate. Um, and, you know, most journalists have been working predominantly from home, you know, in Melbourne this year. Um, but in saying that, you know, the media is probably one of those industries where you do have to be, you know, where the story is. Um, and so I guess for the foreseeable future, I'll kind of, that's, that's probably going to be Melbourne for me um, or, or overseas if I'm lucky enough to get that sort of gig. But yeah, maybe when I'm kind of, you know, got a few different book ideas and, and a podcast to work on, mate, I'll move back to the country. Well, I'd, I reckon you'd have some pretty good stories to tell on the podcast and um, I can't wait to see what you've got um, coming in the future in terms of writing your books and reading your articles and hopefully listening to you one day on a podcast. So um, thanks heaps for coming on the show. It's been awesome. It's it's a little bit different of an episode than what we've usually had. Um, you know, we've had a lot of sport people and that sort of thing come on, but um, it's been good to have a bit of variety and have you on and talk about some journalism stuff and your experiences and stuff like that. So thanks heaps for coming on. I really appreciate you giving up your time. Um, and hopefully when you're down in Warnable next, we can catch up for a beer or something like that. Definitely. Thanks, Liam. Holy mackerel, what a great man Nino is. And we thank him so very much for coming on for a chat today. And also, thank you to all the loyal listeners for tuning into Episode 7 of the Snow & Co. Series podcast. Before you go, don't forget to get in touch with us on any of our social media platforms at the Snow & Co. Series. It's obvious that I love a chat. But if you want to talk business, maybe flick me an email and we can be a little bit more professional about it. Don't forget to follow us and give us a rating and a review on any of our platforms that allow it. Love you always. Adios.